The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sportbox. Here are your headlines today. Asian stocks slip following Wall Street lower as investors trade cautiously ahead of a bumper week of tech earnings and central bank action. UBS beats bottom line expectations with a 23% rise in fourth quarter net profit. We'll bring you Jeff's interview with the Swiss lender's CEO Ralph Harmers at 8 o'clock CET. Disruption from the reopening wave fades as China's economy swings back to growth, posting its first rise in factory activity since September. The IMF lifts the world economic outlook for the first time in a year, but the UK lags behind other developed economies. The IMF's chief economist tells CNBC he's cautious about being over-optimistic. There is a, a reason to be very vigilant going forward, but at the same time, inflation needs to be brought down to central bank levels. If we don't do this, then we're entering a period of macroeconomic instability and volatility, and it will be that much harder to do it later. And the energy complex plus energy transition front and center at the annual meeting of Baker Hughes here in Florence. This as the company announces a new partnership with Fortescue Future Industries to explore green hydrogen and geothermal projects. We're going to be speaking to the Baker Hughes CEO, Lorenzo Simonelli, in around about 30 minutes' time. A busy old day on the earnings front today and we've got bank numbers crossing uh, first up from UBS today. Let me just run you through the final quarter and for the year for the final three months of uh, 2022, 1.9 billion US dollars reported. This is the profit before tax. You've got uh, RO CET1 capital 14.7%, cost income ratio at 75.8 and CET1 capital ratio at 14.2. This tallies up across the course of full year 2022 with a profit before tax of 9.6 billion US dollars. The uh, RO CET1 capital at 17%, cost income ratio smaller than that final quarter at 72.1% and the CET1 and a capital ratio stable from the fourth quarter across over the course of the year. Uh, the company is talking about the combined impact of persistent inflation, central bank tightening that we saw, the war in Ukraine, other geopolitical tensions affected asset pricing levels and investor sentiment. And uh, they're saying that um, their clients saw them maintain momentum across the firm. Against the backdrop, uh, they attracted 60 billion US dollars in new <coughs> net fee generating assets. And when it comes to net new money, of asset management, uh, 2 billion Swiss francs of net new investment products for personal banking. That is an 8% growth rate. Clients repositioned their investments in response to interest rates. They say they captured high yield through savings products, certificates of deposit, money market funds. And uh, that saw a 17% year-over-year increase in net interest income across the business in 2022. In terms of what clients are doing, they say private clients generally remained on the sidelines throughout the year due to high uncertainty and unfavorable market trends. 
institutional clients, they were very active, driven by sustained uh, equity market volatility in the first half of 2022 and by strong FX and rates markets in the second half. So really a, a half year where you saw equity markets in the first half, second half they run FX and rates. Very interesting tone there, I think, around the activity that we saw from the institutional clients. In terms of just breaking down by the Americas, they're saying that they saw a net new fee generating assets of 17 billion US dollars in the Americas. They closed out the year with another strong quarter and advisor recruiting. They continue to see positive momentum in those private markets, attracting 10 billion in net new commitments. Again, this is just the Americas. A quick tone on EMEA. They generated 20 billion US dollars of net new fee generating assets, completed the sale of a domestic wealth management business in Spain. The global markets uh, business had its best year on record and they performed, uh, outperformed the fee pool in global banking. So a cut above is uh, the tone that they're saying when it comes to the investment banking and global markets business in Europe. Uh, just switching across to the Asia market, APAC, they attracted 14 billion US dollars in net new fee generating assets. Number one, they say, in equity capital markets for new domestic banks and delivered the best MA on record. Uh, so they had a couple of bright patches across on those Asian markets as well. So uh, in terms of some of the lines, I think we've got the top ones there, but uh, Jeff is going to drill into some of the detail for us. He's got an interview coming up on the channel with UBS CEO Ralph Harmus that is at 8 CET. Well, very busy on the earnings front, as I mentioned, and Unicredit's now crossing two from Italy this morning. The latest on the numbers, Q4 net profit has hit the tape at 2.46 billion versus 1.1 billion in average company provided consensus, so well and truly above that consensus figure. On the final print on revenue for the quarter, 5.72 billion versus 5.12 billion seen in consensus numbers, so again, topping out on that level. In terms of a net interest, uh, that is at 3.43 billion euros, again above consensus of 3.11 billion. Net fees, 1.62 billion versus 1.61 billion seen in consensus. Q4 net loan write downs of 520 million euros versus 869 million seen in consensus. So fewer write downs there. The CET1 ratio at 16% at the end of December. Uh, CET1 pro forma for distribution 14.91. So a couple of major lines there proposed cash dividend of 1.91 billion, share buyback of 3.34 billion. But uh, Jamana has been reading ahead into this uh, as the numbers hit the tape. And Jamana, you can probably provide some context on those numbers and what Andrea Orsell is up to over at Unicredit. <laughs> Absolutely, Karen. Well, from the likes of it and just hearing the numbers from you, it sounds like a very comfortable beat on the side of Unicredit uh, across the top line and the bottom line. And also that CET1 ratio coming in at 16 percentage points. Remember, that's very comfortably above where the ECB set that capital requirements of around nine percentage points. And this is really a story that has been played out over the last couple of years. Remember, Andrea Orsell took the helm in April 2022. So it hasn't quite been a year yet. But in that year, there's been a tremendous amount of capital buybacks. So there's been a lot of return back to shareholders. We've seen a huge appreciation in the stock price as well. And namely because Unicredit is uniquely benefiting from the rising interest rate environment. Of course, we have the ECB meeting coming up on Thursday. They're expected to hike again by 50 basis points. But all of that is music to these banks' ears, especially if you're the likes of Unicredit relying so much on your net interest margin 
question to generate those positive returns. The other thing is that from a credit quality perspective, and this isn't unique to Unicredit, in general, the Italian banking system has been a lot more discerning about their underwriting activity. The NPLs, non-performing loans, have been really quite low. So I'm very interested to see the color that they're going to provide about how they're thinking about provisioning the cost of risk coming into 2023, knowing that this could be quite a challenging year for the economy. But in 2022, we didn't really see that cost of risk rising so much. And then the third thing, is what I started out saying, is that big capital buffer. Again, Italian banks are sitting on a lot of excess capital that they have been distributing to shareholders. And this is all part and parcel of this Unicredit unlocked strategy, the strategy set out by the bank uh, towards the end of 2021, a three-year plan uh, which laid out their revenue targets, their cost income targets, as well as how much they plan on giving out to their shareholders. And the fact that that CET1 ratio is 16% tells you that they have managed to hit them for this year. They're probably going to be quite comfortable, quite happy with the results for 2022 as a whole. And, uh, and I, I'm guessing that Andrea Orsel, when we sit down with him in about an hour's time, 8.15 CET time for our exclusive, will be uh, quite happy with how the year has turned out. But of course, looking ahead to 2023, 2024, some of the questions people are going to be asking is, how does that cost of risk look? given the macroeconomic deterioration, and can they keep it up with these shareholder returns, with the buybacks and with the dividend payments that they've been doing? I want to ask you, Jamana, very quickly about Russia, because it feels as though Andre Orsel has been very much on the front foot when it comes to strategy. But in the numbers today, there's an inclusion of Russia, there's an exclusion of Russia. The reality is the company hasn't managed to get out of Russia at this point, only just wind down some of the earnings. Yes, uh, and that has come up in previous earnings as well, and no doubt that it is uh, a question that many people have been putting to Unicredit and to Mr. Arcel himself. They still have a presence in Russia. They have been reducing their presence there, but um, from an over, uh, overriding perspective, what they tend to do is break down the numbers and profit excluding and including Russia. It is still a business that generates profits for them. It remains to be seen whether that is still going to be part and parcel of their longer term strategic plan. But of course, many people are asking questions, not just about Russia, but also where growth is going to come from. Because if you look at that stock price performance, as I mentioned to you, if you had bought the stock last April, you're sitting on almost 100% all in return, both from stock price appreciation and from share buyback activity. So, so going forward, questions are going to be asked about how they can continue with that momentum and where further growth is going to come from, if not from some of these emerging economies. Jamana, thank you very much for setting that up for us. I'm very interested to hear the interview. I do remember, I think it was Handelsblatt that Andre Rossell was at. He was talking about what could be achieved with personal execution on the numbers out of Unicredit. So we are very keen to hear what is next for the company. Let me take you back to what we're seeing on markets as the Federal Reserve begins its two-day meeting tomorrow, or today rather, following which is expected to raise its benchmark rate by 25 basis points to a target range of 45 to 4.75%. But despite the slowing pace of high Hikes and expectations that inflation stateside has peaked. Fed watchers still expect Chairman Jerome Powell to once again strike a hawkish tone as fears linger that inflation is not falling quickly enough. And of course, today, tomorrow, all on watch for what the outcome is, as well as that uh, view on markets from here, the liquidity that's been tightening. And when it comes to US markets, there's been some caution now just coming back into the mix as we started off a brand new trading week and closed out a month. As you can see, the Dow, the S&P and NASDAQ have been just pulling back after what has been a very strong 
January, these markets have seen momentum trades and beaten up areas of the market, namely big-name tech stocks. The Nasdaq in particular, though, giving back some of those gains in session yesterday, trading down to the tune of almost 2%, taking the S&P with it. The Nasdaq uh, falls much greater than what we're seeing on the Dow at this stage. But in terms of big moving stocks to the downside, it was the likes of Apple and Microsoft uh, that were moving some of these big names. In terms of what it looks like up close, you can see Apple down 2%, 2.1 off Microsoft. Steeper falls on Meta, again, another big reporter this week. Mark Zuckerberg were giving us a show and tell on the metaverse, but uh, the stock in reverse. Along with Tesla down 6.3%, we did see a fightback strategy from another major rival, Ford, yesterday on cutting the prices of some of its vehicles also so they can apply for those federal tax credits. So Tesla facing fresh competition again on the pricing front in the EV market. Elsewhere, Ford and NVIDIA of close to 6%. To the Asian markets, picking up on uh, this lead, you can see it is a negative day across those Asian uh, stock markets. Four tenths down for Japanese names in Tokyo. Hong Kong market shedding 360-odd points, another negative print. It was also a weaker day yesterday, so we are certainly seeing a little bit of a wobble around that Hong Kong market. Shanghai modestly weak in Australia, barely moving, just tilting lower. Plenty coming up on the show, including the outlook on the economy, the IMF raising its global growth outlook for the year after China's reopening. But it's not good news for everyone here in Europe. We'll discuss the latest report after this break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. U.S. companies will no longer be able to get licenses to export to Huawei, according to the Financial Times, which says the Biden administration is moving closer to a full ban on American tech firms selling to the Chinese telecom equipment maker. The FT says the U.S. Commerce Department has already notified some companies of its decision to stop granting the licenses. China's economy rebounded in January amid tailwinds from the end of zero COVID policies and the Lunar New Year holiday. Manufacturing PMI came in at 50.1, 10 basis points above the baseline, which separates growth from contraction and above analyst expectations. Meanwhile, non-manufacturing activity surged to 54.4 from December's 41.6 reading. Sam joins us with more on this. Sam, it feels as though this might just be the tip of the iceberg in terms of the survey data. Good morning to you, Karen. It's fascinating because it's not even been two months since China dismantled the harshest elements of its zero COVID strategy. And already we're starting to see signs of a broad based recovery when it comes to the economy. Perhaps that is signaling that maybe the exit wave that the market was concerned about isn't as bad as first expected. What we've seen is, as you mentioned, factory and also services sector activity jumping back into expansion territory for the first time since September, where they've both been in contraction. I'll start with non-manufacturing PMI because that was the real standout. This covering services and construction leaping out of contraction from a reading of 41.6 to a jump of 54.4. 
That was largely put down to what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, of course, in the month of January with the Lunar New Year holiday. We saw millions of trips across the country, people hitting the road, of course, uh, heading out to, to tourism spots and also spending their money. So that gave a big boost to consumption. So that really helped things out for the services sector. It was good for things like catering and accommodation. That's good news for the consumption story in the fact that China does need to rely uh, on that side of the equation right now as we are seeing slowing overseas demand and softening exports. It is having to rely on consumption right now, uh, of course, to mitigate that when it came to factory activity as well. Also expanding, that was despite the seasonal factors when, of course, manufacturing typically slows down. Uh, And so what we have seen is an improvement across the board. There is an expectation, certainly in the market, that that could further continue uh, as China continues to learn to live with the virus and also as some of that manufacturing, of course, that comes back online after the holiday. But Karen, back to you. Sam, thank you very much for that. The International Monetary Fund has raised its outlook for global growth to 2.9% for 2023, up from its October projection of 2.7%. The revised number is still below the expansion of 3.4% seen last year. The IMF says China's reopening, easing energy costs and, quote, surprisingly resilient demand in the US and Europe will all help fuel growth this year. But warned higher interest rates in the war in Ukraine would also weigh on global activity. The IMF also upgraded its forecast for most countries, revising China's growth outlook sharply higher to 5.2%. Meanwhile, the UK is the only leading economy projected to slide into recession this year as rising living costs tamper British spending. The IMF's chief economist, Pierre-Olivier Gorinches, has told CNBC that global growth rebounded last year, helping boost economic activity. There's been a lot of resilience in the global economy in the last two quarters of 2022. So we've seen tight labor markets in many advanced economies. We've seen private demand that has been actually quite strong, household uh, uh, consumption, business investment. And we've seen also a lot of resilience to the energy crisis for European economies. You put all of this together uh, and you have uh, relatively stronger, somewhat stronger activity in the last part of 2022 that leads us to revise our growth projection for that year and it carries over into 2023. And then on top of that, the other piece of good news is the reopening of China's economy that is going to power the second half of uh, uh, the year in, in 2023 is going to power economic activity. Dan Borderman, Western CIO and CEO of BRI Wealth Management, joins us now to talk about these numbers. Dan, we've got better figures to work with now, but still slower than last year. So just walk us through what you make of the new IMF assessment of world economic growth from here. Yeah, I mean, I think it was understand- understandable to see, you know, China reopening and that that's going to be a bit of a tailwind to uh, global growth this year. But I still think there are multiple headwinds, especially for uh, advanced and, and developed economies, uh, mainly because interest rates have moved substantially higher over the last year. You know, they've gone from basically nothing in, in most uh, developed uh, economies to sort of four or five percent. And the, 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 the toll that that has on a, an economy from an economic perspective does take time to come to fruition. And so I think that will continue to put, put large economies under significant pressure throughout 2023. And in those unusual windows where good news is bad news when it comes to markets, and as we take a look at this economic growth picture now, it does make you wonder whether this could be bad news in the sense that interest rates could be higher for longer. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the market has has, has moved uh, quite a lot over the last couple of months in terms of uh, expecting what the Fed is going to do. I mean, the market has moved to a quite dovish position and thinks, you know, we're only going to expect a quarter of a percentage point rise to, to tomorrow and then maybe one more in March and then, you know, it'll be cutting at the end of the year. And this deviates quite a lot from the the, the Fed uh, dot plot um, who can see that they will be tightening sort of past 5% and interest rates will be staying sort of where they are well into 2024. So I think this week's actually quite a big week for for, for markets. You know, we've got three central bank uh, meetings where I think this sort of dovish or hawkish narrative will, you know, finally uh, come out. I personally feel markets maybe have got it wrong. I think the Fed has been very um, resolute in trying to battle inflation, have been very clear that they will remain hawkish until the, the job is done. We've also got about 20% of the S&P 500 reporting uh, this week. And of course, we've got the non-farms on Friday as, as well. So I think this is quite a big week for shaping the, the narrative for the coming couple of months uh, in the investment world. I agree more, Dan. Let me ask you directly about the UK, because this is where the really bleak numbers have crossed. Uh, the only major advanced economy seen to be in recession this year, 0.6% fall in GDP. What does that mean for the Bank of England? I, I've, I've said it for a lot of last year, but the Bank of England is, is in a really tricky spot because growth in the UK hasn't been as as resilient. And I think it puts further pressure on them that whilst inflation is so high, um, but growth is so weak, it is it puts them in a very tricky spot to keep raising interest rates. Uh, you know, clearly our, the, the battle with inflation isn't done and they need to be shown and, and seen to be, you know, winning that and taking it seriously because their credibility uh, is at risk here. But it puts them in a tricky spot. In an ideal world, you do not want to be tightening monetary policy when you're already in a recession or you're going into a, a deeper one, as the IMF has, has suggested. So, I, I, yeah, it'll be very interesting over the coming months to see at what point they they pivot um, and recognise that they need to be slightly uh, looser with, with policy than, than tighter. And so many nuances here, and it feels like the same story with the ECB. Barely any growth to write home about this year, yet an ECB that still has to embark further upon the, the monetary tightening journey at this point with the broadening out of inflation pressures. Uh, in terms of the, the growth numbers, forecast at 0.7 of a percent versus 0.5 of a percent. And of course, we know the bloc is made up of very different member countries with different growth rates. What's the challenge that you see for the ECB here in terms of getting it right in 2023? I, I think it's similar to the, to, the, to the Bank of England. I mean, most central banks and uh, develop, developed economies, we, you know, were too late to start tightening rates. And so they've had to move very, very quickly to tackle uh, inflation. And unfortunately, that for places like uh, the UK and, and the European economy, partially because of exogenous uh, factors, but having to tighten very quickly and at the point where a recession and, and, and is, is sort of very likely and, and growth is, is, is very weak. And it puts them in a really tricky spot um, and there will be further political pressure uh, or pressure from the public if, you know, inflation is is starting to come down, but growth is, is pretty weak. And if central banks keep raising interest rates, I, I think, you know, it's a pretty unpalatable position for them to be in. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.